0: Welcome to Boringa's Energy Innovators podcast, bringing you a series of thought-provoking and current conversations with industry leaders, where we discuss the transition, transformation, and innovation in energy markets. On today's podcast, we have myself, James Constable from Boringa Hosting, and I'm joined by James McNaughton, CEO of Caldera, and James Greenleaf, a director in Boringa's energy and resources practice. Our conversation is focused on the challenges facing the decarbonisation of UK housing stock, the technology solutions available to do this, and a discussion about some of the policy and market challenges to accelerate the decarbonisation of heat in the UK. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. We're very lucky today. Um, we've got three Jameses on the podcast today. Um, James McNaughton from Caldera, James Greenleaf from Beringa, and myself, James Constable. So uh, first of all, apologies for the multiple Jameses. And um, Very fortunate to have James McNaughton, CEO of of Caldera, with us today. Um, Super exciting startup um, in a really exciting uh, and really exciting space. James, could you uh, just give us an overview of yourself? Because I think you've got a particularly interesting background, and also Caldera. James, thank you. So,
1: my name is James McNaughton, Uh, I'm CEO of Caldera, uh, and we're looking to make heating for homes green or at least contribute to a large number of. Homes being able to switch over to green heating uh, my history i've been an engineer and an entrepreneur for 30 years um, i started my first business uh, while i was at university and i've sort of worked myself that whole period um, caldera itself is developed we developed an ultra efficient heat store for homes and this is going to be really important as we look to decarbonize the grid and the, and the economy and it can store heat for your homes for anywhere from days to weeks. The amount it stores will keep your home warm, if, you, if you're in the middle of winter, will still keep your home warm for 24 hours. And we are at the stage where we're looking to basically do field trials, sort of wider space field trials this year. So uh, just as sort a of step back, the UK has got this massive challenge that we want to decarbonize our economy within 30 years. Um, percent of the housing stock is low carbon heating at the moment so we've got 95 percent to do about a million homes a year and uh the heat demand is two and a half times our electricity demand so when it comes to getting to net zero which is everybody's goal by 2050 how you do your homes is really important and every single one of the 27 million homes in the uk probably needs a slightly different solution so heating is the heating to, from our perspective is the tricky solution and being able to uh, store heat when the renewables are generating to use it later is one of the key elements that will help uh manage the grid of the future great thanks
0: james and james greenleaf from burunga if you could give an overview uh james for our listeners of yourself and um the areas that you cover in bring that'd be that'd be great
2: Great. thanks um, so James Greenleaf. I'm a, I'm a director in the energy markets and analytics practice at Beringa I have been with bring for around 10 10 years um, my, my focus is primarily on what we call sort of energy transition so trying to to understand the implications for the economics sort of technology and business models across buildings and heat and also other sectors such as power and transport uh, and particularly on the heat side've been involved in a, a sort of wide range of um Building heat decarbonisation pathway studies uh, for a mix of clients across UK government, with Bays, uh, Vattenfall, National Grid, and Energy System Catapults, and looking at quite a wide range of different sort of heating decarbonisation options, from efficiency measures through electrification to uh, to hydrogen district heating.
0: Great. Right. So let's let's get into um, a bit of context on the market and what's going on, um, guys. Do one of you want to pick up and give a view of? Uh, what's going on in in the decarbonisation of heat in
1: the UK? Okay, so I would say there is, um, at the moment there is there's definitely concern about how we decarbonise our housing stock in an affordable manner. There are probably three leading strands of of sort of government policy. Uh, One is around fitting heat pumps to home and electrifying heating. Second one is around retrofitting homes to reduce the energy consumption And the third one is around potentially using hydrogen, which can be generated from renewables and then fed through the gas grid, allowing homes that are using uh, gas boilers to continue to use um, use gas. And, And to put it in context, your home might use in winter, as a four bedroom house might use, 12 kilowatt hours of electricity. It might use the same amount of energy for heating hot water. And then on a cold day, you might use 100 kilowatt hours of energy for heating your home. So what you see is that the demand for energy and in particular for heat in the winter is much, much greater than the demand for electricity. And, and the question is, how do we manage that at the lowest cost?
2: Yeah, and I suppose just, just, just building on that as well, I mean, thinking about what's happened over the sort of last five, 10 years, it's definitely the case that decarbonisation in heat and buildings is, is lagging behind the developments that we've seen particularly on the power side. Um, and also to, uh, to let best get the, uh, the transport side as well um, despite there being quite a sort of diverse mix of policy and incentives and regulations that have evolved over the years quite a sort of complicated landscape um, I guess the challenge now is we, we need to move further and faster within buildings and, and how do we do that in a sort of coordinated way and as James says trying to do it in a way that allows us to transition at, at lowest cost whilst solving some of these other issues so particularly fuel poverty and distributional challenges which are be more acute than the buildings and heat side compared to some of the other sectors
1: uh, fully agree with that and then you you run into the other problem that we have you know there is there's a few easy wins that we're not doing in the heat sector and there are some things that are not helping so um, epcs which everybody needs to get hold of for their homes when they want to rent them out or buy and sell them to so energy performance certificates um, they're really a co- they're really a related much more to a cost of Heating rather than a carbon footprint. Um, SAP ratings are quite regressive. So the SAP is another form of energy efficiency measures where we use things like, ele- where they, they use numbers for electricity that probably are more reflective of where we were five years ago, and certainly not reflective where we are in 10 years time when electricity will almost be fully decarbonized. It, will, it won't be far away. Um, so th- so those, those things are not helping the market um, and and then on, on top of that, there's a lot of confu- you know there's a lot of confusing policy from government. So there's no long term plan that people are prepared to invest in. So the green home grants was very hasn't really succeeded because people couldn't get hold of people didn't understand it. So I think if you're going to look at tackling homes, there needs to be a long term framework, and you you need that long term framework to get installers, um, suppliers, people that can come in and do work to actually have the confidence to go and fill in all the forms and do the paperwork. I mean, nobody wants to register if they have to, you know, if they've got a whole lot of business, then a year later it all disappears and they've just, you know, they've got catalogues of paperwork. So I don't know, what do you think, James? I mean, that, isn't that been one of the problems, the stop-start nature? Uh, uh, absolutely. I think
2: just the, the additional complexity on the, on the building heat side, Even uh, as you say, there are sort of quick wins and schemes in place, but they haven't been made easy enough to access for consumers let alone before we get to some of the more challenging longer-term, um, longer-term issues. And this sort of got a, a, a anecdotal evidence. My, my neighbour across the road, I can look across and see, I can see his electric vehicle, I can see his solar panels. So he's navigated the processes for applying for those, um, getting the subsidy support in place. And he's trying to do the same thing now to get a heat pump plus some additional insulation and having to firefight his way through three or four different sort of schemes and sets of paperwork. And, and he's into that. that. That's his thing. He loves trying to unpick it, but he's finding it hard enough. So trying to do that for your sort of average homeowner is is, is probably going to be, be beyond them. So I, I think there are a number of different things to think about as you go forward. There's sort of a, how do we finesse and refine the way people access the schemes now to make them as friendly and accessible as possible to consumers, and then think about some of the, the sort of the longer term issues.
0: It's interesting you guys say that. It sounds like, you know, supply chain concerns from your from your end, um, James, from Caldera, but then also the actual customer access, right, to these schemes. And understanding and breaking these things down so people can actually engage but isn't there also a piece on isn't there also quite a significant piece here on the economics and the counterfactual that you're competing with when you're electrifying heat
2: I mean I I think so I think so absolutely I, I think it's one of the challenges for a consumer to um to get to get their head they get their head around it so at the moment energy bills are a relatively small proportion of their total expenditure this is going to increase in the future, but everybody thinks about it in terms of the units of gas or electricity you purchase. You don't have to think about the the cost of the, the kit, the gas boiler, because it comes along so infrequently. And then looking to the future, you've got you've got effectively a whole house retrofit problem. You need to think about the all-in costs of the efficiency measures, the capex of the heating system, the fuel, all of which look different for different solutions and will change over time. And ha- how do you get a consumer to do, find the information, to make a sort of apples-for-apples apples comparison and in a way that they, they trust? And it means that some, you know, some newer technologies, for example, that might look particularly favourable when viewed in the sort of whole house way, don't look that favourable when you've got that sort of generic comparison against what
1: we what we do today. Uh, yes, I've, I've had conversations with people who who want to go green, and they keep saying, you know, I was offered a um, you know, heat pump, and he said, I just think I'm going to replace my boiler. It's, you know, I've got a gas boiler. I just think I'm going to replace gas boiler. You know, it's twenty five thousand pounds. It's you know and it, it, it's not so so no the, and that that is a very so so one of the issues is around um perceived cost and nine or is it 95 percent of homes in the uk are on gas i think is the correct number isn't yeah, that's it James? correct that's correct uh so and and gas is effectively subsidized uh, i think we're going to talk about well, we could talk about it now i mean gas versus electricity there's There are hidden subsidies for gas, and there are hidden penalties for electricity. So, when you compare the two fuels together, it's you know from a cost perspective, it's it's a no-brainer to stay with gas at the moment. Just just break that down for our listeners. When you say when you say hidden costs and cost penalties, can you just break down what we mean? So, I think we're talking about policy costs and network costs, right? I'm I'm going to let James G talk about gas, but on the electricity side, you pay um, uh, from your bill, uh, you pay around forty probably about 20% is for social charges, so this is to pay for the solar panels and wind farms that have already been built. So the aim was to subsidise green technologies, and then as electricity is now uh, almost the cleanest fuel, I think I think this last year it switched over, so on average heating with electricity is now, even if it's direct, is now it produces less CO2 than heating with natural gas, um, and in the, it's only going to drop. So we know, we know it's going to drop over the next 10 years massively. Um, so you have this, but at the same time, it's being taxed to pay for these green measures. So you get the slight irony, which is this is the cleanest fuel, and yet it's having all these taxes levied onto it, none of which are applied to natural gas. And then the second aspect is the network charges often don't reflect um, the value of what you're using. But I think we'll, we'll talk about that one a little bit later. And On the gas stack, James G, do you want to just talk about how it's, in a sense of why it's so hard to
2: compete against. No, exactly. And as you say, you're around 20% on the, uh, on the electricity side and the retail tariff is to recover the cost of these other green and social schemes. I think the equivalent on the gas side is sort of like less, less than 5%. You can find the sort of the off-gen typical breakdowns. So you have, a, you have a challenge in that it's hard enough to get that all in view of the economics of different competing options even if you could get that the current policy landscape is somewhat skewing you away from that economic optimum in the in the first place I mean it might be worth um I guess just because you, you mentioned at the start James uh, James M one of the sort of the, the key issues around building heat and the I suppose the, the market segmentation trying to understand what are the most appropriate technologies for the different building types I guess to sort of understand that in a bit more detail
1: so okay so you've got in the UK we have Uh, We have old housing stock, so about a quarter of our homes, uh, roughly seven of our 27 million homes were built before 1930. They have solid walls, um, and if you've lived in a home with solid walls, you will know that they are generally quite cold, Um, they are difficult to insulate. Um, You bought your home because it was nice and it looked beautiful and it had old bricks on the outside, so you don't want to put any insulation on the outside, and it's not very big because our homes are not very big, so you certainly don't want to put any insulation on the inside because you can lose five or 6% of the size of your property. So, so you end up with these homes being really hard to tackle. Um, you know, newer homes, are, you know, where you can do cavity wall insulation, and loft insulation, they're, they're easier to tackle. And we've done about 70% of them for cavity wall and loft insulation. In terms of homes with solid walls, we've done less than 10% um, and everybody has avoided them. And, the reason from our, the, the reason we think is that because it doesn't doesn't make economic sense. So if you did a retrofit to reduce your energy consumption and you spread the cost of that, the home improvement. So you let's say you did do solid wall insulation, you put a double glazing in, you put some underfloor heating in because you wanted to run, you know, a heat pump, and you put some insulation in with that as well. And you find that the energy cost over, you know, the, the saved energy over 20 years is 20 per kilowatt hour. And you're going, but I can buy, you know, my gas bill is 5p a kilowatt hour. You know, what, why am I paying 20p to save a unit? And then, and then when you work it out on the terms of the carbon savings, you get a sort of carbon price anywhere between 150 and thousand pounds a tonne. And the current carbon price the government sets is 20 pounds a tonne. Now I will caveat that, which is that, you know, without a doubt living in a warm, well insulated home has health benefits. Um, people tend to get less ill and often in poorly insulated homes the reality is people simply don't heat them as much as they want to because it's too expensive so you know there are there are definitely benefits to insulating properties where it makes sense but there are some properties where you look at and go we shouldn't try and tackle them with insulation because they're just the starting point is wrong The, the one area that drives you know that I find very I uh, say so it drives me crazy, um, very difficult, is that we're not building new houses to passive house standards. It's the easiest win. Um, you know, I haven't, you know, I've, I've been given numbers and I, I I suspect they're roughly in the right ballpark, which is that to build a modern home to a passive house standard adds about £5,000. The day you finish it, it's £20,000 to do that as a retrofit. It, that that would seem to me about the right ratio. It's always easier to do things when you're building them and you're putting it up in stages. Um, so for me, new homes and we build what, 150 to 200,000 a year. They should all be being built to this. We shouldn't be. Ad- we're currently adding to the problem when we could actually have one of the cheap areas. We could actually be fixing it. We're adding to the problem every year faster than we're fix- faster than we're actually resolving it. No, 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 I totally agree on that. I think I'm going to come back to later on the discussion
2: around the, the role of things like minimum standards in enforcing change appropriately, particularly for new build, but also for existing. I, I just come back to your point on the, on the economics, I suppose just to, to illustrate the scale. I mean, the, the easy wins, you were talking about, the uh, the cavity wall loft insulation, that might be, you know, a few hundred pounds, obviously, plus the hassle of having to empty the loft, whereas solid wall insulation, you might be talking about closer to, to 10,000 pounds. There is, there's definitely a point where it makes sense to just make your heating system larger and not worry about putting in putting in so much insulation but um, given the diversity as you say across the UK buildings, you've got a, a huge sliding scale from large very old very inefficient buildings that are hard to retrofit through the efficiency to smaller buildings which you can do that and that dramatically changes the economics of the sort of optimal heating solutions. So you want to put the sort of the heat pumps in the small, well insulated buildings. Um, maybe you have district heating for some of the the larger, more inefficient, uh, inefficient properties, but then only in areas where you've got sort of quite high heat density, the buildings are clustered close together. But then you think about what do I do for my, my off-gas grid buildings? Because they are they tend to be larger and more inefficient. So you don't necessarily have that you know heat network option. So do you have a view about some of the sort of optimal solutions in the different uh, in the different properties?
1: We are focused particularly on off gas grid properties uh, hydrogen is simply not a solution and most off gas grid properties on average are older larger and less well insulated than those on the gas grid um, and we we are our sort of basis or our view is that we're looking for zero carbon uh zero carbon economy not a low energy economy if a home is heated with renewable energy and it uses more energy than it would do for example if it's fitted a heat pump and they're both zero carbon. So what? That is, that is, we're off to zero carbon. And people, if it's a, if it's a cheaper route to zero carbon by insulating, we say you should insulate. But we think for many homes, actually, the best solution and the least disruptive solution would be to fit something like our heat battery. So, and and that's a very clear market we're targeting. We're not targeting on gas grid homes because gas is so hard to compete against, and we're unsure what direction policy will take. So there are, are probably that hydrogen is what is being pushed there are quite a lot of technical and economic concerns about hydrogen for heating. Um, but definitely these homes in the countryside there's 3 million homes in the UK was well, so about 3.7 million that are not on the gas grid. And in terms of using oil or heating oil or LPG it's about 1.2 million so th- those homes we're very focused on because uh we don't really have to fight with hydrogen and they generally are the, you know that they're, they're out in the countryside and, and we're really competing against heat pumps and for some properties where they're well insulated we'd always say use a heat pump uh for the older ones where and i and i have conversations with, with people regularly who who live in these sort of who live in these homes are going this sounds ideal because they really i suppose i take a step back most people don't care about their heating you know it's a small amount of their disposable income You're much more concerned about uh, probably the money you spend on your holiday or, you know, your your car. We don't don't really uh, spend a large proportion of our income on heating and and people are generally not, my view, is not very interested in it. So if you can actually say you can swap, it's about the same cost, it's lower carbon, that's a very easy discussion to have with people. If you say um, you can swap, it's going to cost you £25,000 and you're not really going to get any benefit for that, you know, as in your house price is not going to go up, then it becomes a much harder conversation. So, so we push very much for uh, zero carbon, not low energy. And, and I think that sort of aligns more with what people want. You know, I, I think, think people used to it. It's a really good point. You know, people don't think about their heating
0: a lot because we're used to a high standard of heat, right? Which is, like you said, 95% fueled by natural gas. We're very lucky that we have access to, um, you know, relatively, uh, relative to, to, to power, cheap, um, cheap commodity uh, for it. Um, but as you said, if you're focusing on that, that kind of drafty house out in the sticks in the UK, um, a heat pump isn't going to work. And when we had talked before, what was really interesting was around the, the, the way that a heat battery can help get around some of these comfort issues. So you're used to a high level of a high grade low temperature hot water right we're used to that through gas could you just give us an overview of how heat batteries deal with this flow return issue maybe slightly better and you know economics aside than, than a heat pump
1: okay so so if you if you look at a heat pump um i'll, I'll start with them they when they, when, when it's, they basically move heat, it's, well, it's equivalent to your refrigerator. So the back of your refrigerator is warm, the inside is cold. Um, it's the reverse of that process. It makes a big difference how hot they have to get. So they take heat from outside your home by blowing air over a fan, over, over, over a heat exchanger. And then they heat some water, which goes in your home. Now, if the water is at 35 degrees and you're running underfloor heating, that's great. If you have small cast iron radiators and you need to turn the water temperature up to 75 degrees, that's not good because the the efficiency of the heat pump drops significantly as you go to these higher temperatures. And and also for reasons um, such as Legionnaires disease, people, you generally, plumbers tend to set your hot water cylinder at 65 and they tend to set your heating system at 65 because that's safe. You can run water cylinders at lower temperatures In my experience, most people don't. They just they get set once by, uh, you know, just get set one temperature on the boiler, and then you switch the, the heating or hot water on at different times of day. That's about the level most people deal with their heating, and and the problem is that when you go to these high water temperatures, you don't get the benefit of the heat pump, and some of them can't can't deliver it. So when we go going to a heat battery, our focus was on lots of power. So we look to deliver 30 kilowatts, which is the same as a good sized boiler, you know, for, you know, a large home. It's a lot of power in one go. You can run combi boilers, so you can run instantaneous showers from 30 kilowatts. Um, and we also want to do it at high temperature. So I've, you know, we're generally looking to supply it at 75 degrees. I've had a request for 85 from someone who lives in a home with very small radiators. That's that's fine. So we're we're very much, looking to do light for light replacement and I have tried running my own home off 15 kilowatts I um, half the power, and I was amazed at the difference um, because in the morning when the heating comes on my hot water cylinder steals all the heat and so the house just takes a lot longer to warm up um, and I think that's been one of the problems with heat pumps which is we've got used to these as you said high levels of comfort but it's sort of instantaneous response which is you get lots of power the house heats up quickly, and then the boiler backs off once you're at temperature. And it's quite hard to replace that with a heat pump of the same power. That's really expensive.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, totally, totally agree with all that. It's, it's one of those interesting things about heat, that what the consumer gets at the moment, for example, from a combi boiler is, is, is everything they, they need. There's no sort of plus point from low carbon heating, even on the electric vehicle side, there was something sort of um, aspirational about the having an electric vehicle as a car. It just doesn't really, doesn't really exist. And I guess just on the the technology side, um, we're starting to see obviously a range of different novel solutions. Everyone talks about heat pumps. Um, But for example, one of the things I was looking at recently was this this notion of um, fifth generation district heating. And they were actually talking about having a ground source heat pump with a sort of shared ground array for a smaller property potentially off, off gas grid and linking that across a number of houses. and retaining a sort of smaller heat pump within each house but um, yeah, by accessing that shared ground array it means they can access a state more stable temperature and it's more efficient to then operate to the higher level temperatures that you uh that you were talking about are needed for some of these some of these properties so it'd be good to get your your sort of your, your take on some of these other all sort of alternatives that are, are concepts that are starting to appear
1: when, whenever i've looked at um district heating networks um now, so, so you're talking about low temperature ones, but if you took a look at more traditional district heating networks, um, the two things that have always slightly shocked me are the cost of connecting up each home, um, which is generally in the region of five or 6,000 pounds a home, assuming it's got a wet heating system already. Um, and the losses, um, you know, uh, the losses from a, from a higher temperature network are anywhere between 10 and 30%. And that's actually quite a big number. So. They generally work well where you have a free supply of waste heat from a you know in europe it's from coal power stations it could be from energy for waste plants in the uk um my concern about district heating is that it it i think as you um it doesn't really work in a net zero scenario and because you know it's really relying on the waste heat from a lot of often burning of fossil fuels or or effectively so it's it seems hard to see the how it's going to work going forwards. Um, going back to your point, uh, the low temperature networks, the advantage of having an individual heat pump in each home is you can go to whatever temperature you need to, so that's a sensible sensible approach. And the thermal loss is lower because you're pumping water around. If you look at the overall process to get you there, I think you'll still find that the uh, doing it in two stages isn't particularly helpful whenever we've done analysis of two stage heat pumping, uh, you take quite a bit of hit because you end up with two heat exchange processes. Um, so I, I, when you, I'm, and I guess when I am think you're talking about a shared ground loop, you know, you're still, are you talking about something at 35 degrees or 10 degrees or five degrees?
2: Yeah, I think I think the ground loop itself would be at that sort of 10 to 20 and you still have to up rate it. But I think the difference, what well, I think novel compared to the sort of standard heat was you then retain the, the individual heat pump per, dwelling and the the householder has more control over the the heating and the actual the the primary device they pay a share in the in the ground loop um
1: so it's it's one of these a connection i would have thought the connection costs well okay so i still would have thought you'd go for an air source heat pump um that to me is you know they're much and people don't particularly I, i i think it's i think it's always more problematic having shared infrastructure um like that but I, so, 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 so I, it doesn't feel like a no brain, you know, you know, people are doing ground, shared ground loops, people are doing uh, cold, so cold sort of medium temperature district heating. Um, it's actually, it's again, it's a, twi- a difficult one to go into people's homes and do it. You have to dig up their garden to get the pipe in, for example. If you're doing it when you're building the property as part of a new housing development, I can see how that works. I sort of think with a lot of what we're doing, though, is we're moving towards might be worth talking about the electrification of everything so you know our view is that offshore wind now is very there's a few things that people may not be aware so offshore wind is now generating electricity at about four and five p and the new generation of turbines coming online are on most of the time they're looking at capacity factors of about 60 percent, which means almost at every point in the year they are generating something um, it's only very very small periods, which is very different to the wind turbines that we have built in the past onshore, where they are they might only be working for a third of the time or less. So that so these new generation they they sort of so they suddenly have very high levels of low cost electricity that's available most of the time, um, and we we look at it and go actually if you think your primary fuel is costing you between let's say four p between four and five p that's really not far off the price you're paying for gas. So why, what it's zero carbon, why wouldn't we be want, you know, and there is, so there is, a, there is a sort of a debate, which is, is it going to be cheaper to build a lot of wind turbines and a lot of infrastructure and networks, or will the peak loads and managing the variability be too expensive, in which case we want to insulate and put heat pumps in and reduce the, the energy demands. And, and to my mind, you want to go down the route that is the lowest cost. And it hasn't really been, I haven't seen evidence yet on either way to convince me that we wouldn't simply be easier for everyone just to build a lot more turbines in the North Sea and, and just simply up, up our electricity supply to everybody. Yeah, so I think, it's, yeah, definitely um, agree. There's, a,
0: there's, a, there's an ongoing argument at the moment, right, around around what will be the predominant way that we, we mass decarbonise in the uk you know it definitely sounds from from your perspective and caldera um, and even some of the research that we're doing um, within Beringa, electrification has got massive part to play in that um, and maybe we can um, there's another conversation around the we haven't touched on it today and the role of potential role of hydrogen within that but just to kind of summarize it feels like you know we've got we've got we've got it's exciting that we've got competing technologies in the in the retrofit market um, I think it was a really good overview personally. I, you know, I would agree with, with, with some of the sentiment there around w- where, w- which technologies work where and why. Um, and you know housing stock is critical. And, and one of the reasons it's so difficult in the UK is because we've got such an old and varied housing stock. Um, and if you, if you compare it to you know, some European countries, they don't have some of those housing stock issues that, that we do. Um, we've touched on the various um, those various technology solutions and kind of some of the drivers behind them Um, but essentially it's all about driving towards this net net zero ambition and I really like your point James M on um, you know we're we're, we're driving towards a a net zero economy not a low energy economy and that it's you know maybe our power load will actually increase off the back of um, uh, electrification of heat which it it most certainly will um, what do we think needs to change, and what's the, the key message that we want to land with our listeners on the call to action to, to really catalyze this change that we need to achieve?
2: I mean, I think, I think one of the key things is coming back to this, this, this building segmentation, consumer segmentation, and how do you properly incentivize the right technology solutions in the right place? And it, it, it matters a lot. I mean, what work we've done recently looking at where you need to be in the sort of mid 2030s. Um, on the sort of decarbonisation pathway for buildings consistent with net zero, if you didn't try and tailor and optimise your heating solutions, you might end up spending you know, sort of 30 billion by that point. If you could better tailor them, you might save around the 10 billion of investment costs relative to that, which is a, which is a bit is, is a big deal. And I think one of the things that we haven't quite got a handle on properly within the policy framework at the moment is the sort of this concept of of sort of zoning and targeting the policy appropriately. There are areas where communal solutions, district heating will make more sense, but we don't have the framework which says, yes, those make more sense and we will incentivize you appropriately for buildings in the round in that area in a coordinated way, be that mandating connection to a heat network or whatever it may be. Equally on the off gas grid side, setting the appropriate incentive such that we know there's going to be a subset of solutions, be it heat batteries or anything else that may exist in, in that space. Whereas at the moment, ACM is looking at a sort of a broad market arrangement that serves all purposes, but actually the benefits of tailoring in terms of the economics are, are significant. So I think that's one where we've got to move. There's a, there's a few steps to that. The starting point where even the incentives, be it VAT or subsidy schemes at the moment, are slightly, or even, you know, what we recover through the gas price is slightly unbalanced, and we need to make that a more neutral playing field. But then once we've done that, we need to probably segment different parts of the market target our policy frameworks appropriately for each of those it will be differentiated and it won't be a completely clear market across all all buildings all consumers and in some cases i think that will naturally lead to a reduced consumer choice you, you, you're not you're not going to give you know consumers in certain segments the ability to use different types of heating systems because we know they're not economic but
1: in the round that's in the interest of those of those consumers and i guess from uh, from our side we would like to see the electricity pricing structure reward flexibility um due to some of the charges we mentioned earlier it actually penalizes flexibility um and so so that and that's a probably a longer term conversation around you know that i think is being reviewed at the moment but if you don't give people you know we we want to charge our units off peak when there's surplus energy when it will be thrown away with the current pricing structure you, you are often likely to throw energy away rather than store it because of how the pricing structure works, which is crazy. You know, we want, we want a system where every bit that can be used is used. You know, there will still probably be periods of surplus generation, but you need to have a pricing structure that incentivizes people to do it. If you charge people the same amount for every unit of electricity all, this, uh, all day, you just won't, you won't, people won't change their behavior. And we, and we know that they, you have to ask them to and then there's a second call to arms I would have with around um, uh, the distribution, uh, upgrading the grid, and that it probably needs to be tackled by the distribution companies in a sort of Marshall Plan-esque manner, which is not in a piecemeal approach, but potentially the government needs to look at going in and doing an entire street at a time rather than one house at a time with upgrading if you're putting electric vehicles in. And to me, that's that that, that would be a... Uh, you know it, it, it's always cheaper to do you know an entire street or an entire community in one go than it is to do them one at a time. Great great that was a really
0: interesting insightful conversation um that I'm sure many people will find very helpful to unpack what is quite a complex and um pretty innovative area and I think it's a space that we're going to see see much more interest in over the the coming years so thank you both. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please hit the subscribe button to keep up to date with our latest podcast releases and hear more from Beringa and our energy innovators. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast or would like to learn more about Beringa, please email us at boringa.com or visit our website linked in the podcast bio.